0: I'm Kate Northrup,
1: and I'm Mike Watts, and we're partners in life, love, and business.
0: Welcome to the Kate and Mike show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show. This is Kate. This is Mike. And we are very excited for the episode today with Wednesday Martin, PhD. This episode went a lot of places that I don't think we've ever gone before oh, in the Kate and Mike show. We've Never gone, right? We I don't, have, I don't we think we've talked ever
1: to... talked about monogamy. We haven't really talked about relationships. or relation, non-mama, even non-mama, mama, non-mommy. I don't think we've actually talked about relationships that much.
0: No, oddly, we should probably talk about it more. I know probably. we did with the Terry Cole show than we did a while back. But anyway, so Wednesday Martin's fascinating, brilliant woman. She has worked as a writer and social researcher in New York City for over two decades. She was an instant number one New York Times bestseller with her memoir, Primates of Park Avenue. And her book, Step Monster, a finalist for the prestigious Books for a Better Life Award, is widely considered the go-to source for stepmothers, adult stepchildren, therapists, and others who seek a uniquely candid interdisciplinary cross-cultural, and comprehensive look at the topic. We didn't talk that much about stepmotherhood or being a stepchild, but we should have. I am a stepchild. I like to call my stepmother my bonus mom. She's wonderful. And the book that we talked about today is her newest book called Untrue. And Untrue is about the new research on female sexuality and lust and monogamy and non-monogamy, why nearly everything we believe about women, lust, and adultery is wrong and how the new science can set us free. So if you are in relationship, if you are a human being, this episode will apply to you. We also talked a lot about parenthood and relationships and sexuality.
1: Yes, we did.
0: So if you're in a long-term relationship, if you're a parent and you're navigating that, then this episode is going to be really insightful for you
1: enjoy i mean i don't think we should say anything else i think we they should just listen
0: yeah great okay yeah yeah enjoy wednesday martin enjoy hello
2: wednesday hi how are you guys today thanks for being here thanks for having me
0: i found you through our mutual friend latham thomas
2: Oh, can we just say how great she is?
0: So talk about Latham for a second. We've had her on the podcast. I adore Latham. Um, Oh, I do too. How did you meet Latham?
2: All right. So we met through a mutual friend, our mutual friend, Tiffany Dufu. Oh, cool. Oh my gosh. Her book. He's coming on
0: the podcast too.
2: Good. So like so many good things in my life, Latham was introduced to me by... A girlfriend. So Tiffany said, you've got to meet Latham. And she hosted a dinner where a bunch of her girlfriends got together and they were all wonderful. They've all become friends, but um, I had like a very special bond with Latham. And fast forward, maybe a year after I had met her, I was speaking with her on the phone and we were talking about my book about female sexuality that I was working on. And Latham said to me, Uh, You know, it's so funny because you go to your OBGYN's office and there are those charts, those drawings, those posters of the female reproductive system. And I said, Yeah. And she said, I mean, and we've all seen those posters of the female reproductive system a million times. We know about the uterus and the fallopian tubes, and we know about all these things. She said, where are the maps of the female pleasure system? Why aren't there posters of the female pleasure system? And I said, yeah, why aren't there? And she said, yeah, like, where's the map of the female erectile network and the internal clitoris? And I said, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, oh, girl. So I Googled it while we were talking and,
0: uh, popped this picture from Sherry Winston's yes, website. Yes, Sher- I was just going to say Sherry Winston.
2: And it was this fabulous drawing of something that I had and had never even imagined, even as a you know 50-year-old feminist who had written a lot about women's sexuality and sexual health and reproductive rights. I didn't know about the internal clitoris, let alone... The female erectile network, which you know includes the urethral sponge and the perineal sponge, I didn't know that we had this super highway of decadent sexual sensation. I just thought it was a little button, right? The little pea-sized thing. So because of Latham, I ended up writing this Amazon original story called The Button which is like an adventure story about discovering the clitoris. And the story takes us from, you know, when I did some field work in Costa Rica to find female spider monkeys in their natural habitat. Female spider monkeys have what's called a pendulous hypertrophied clitoris, which hangs down and looks like a penis. And it's a common error for beginning primatologists when they're in the field and see spider monkeys to mistake the females for males. The male's penis is usually retracted into his body until he has an erection, but the female has what looks like a penis. So, you know, Latham sort of sent me on a quest all over the world, really, on an adventure to discover the truth about the female clitoris. And it took me, you know, from ancient Greece to a rainforest in Costa Rica to my interview with Latham. So I I thank her for one of the greatest adventures of my life. And I know a lot of people listening have set off on great adventures because of something a girlfriend told them. And that's one of the reasons Latham is so special to me. Also, she's just such a beautiful, supportive person, right? She she's is. A, yeah, she's a person who is always there for you. So I try to live up to her example. And I think that what she's doing about the Black maternal health
0: crisis in our country is so incredibly important. I completely completely agree. And that story, I have to tell you, was a million times better than what I was anticipating. (laughs) (laughs) You've already vastly (laughs)
2: over-delivered. She's such a great topic. I'm writing something about her and I can say, I'm going to share the lead and she wouldn't mind the lead of the story that I'm writing about her is Latham Thomas grew up naked. So people will have to
0: stay tuned to learn
2: that fascinating fact about Latham Thomas.
0: I will be very interested and that will be published somewhere.
2: Right. I believe it'll be in the Hollywood reporter, wait and see, but Go to my mm-hmm. website and check, and you'll find it.
0: I can't wait. Well, by the I, way,
2: do you want to see? I know your, your listeners can't see this, but here's a drawing my friend, the primatologist Michelle Bazanson, did of a hypertrophy pendulous. Uh,
0: so, do you work. think Wednesday that um, so that we can include that in the show notes? You might yes. be able to just snap a photo with of your phone. Of course, I would be happy and to. Then we'll put that because that's it. A, it's beautiful, and that's B, amazing. I think people need to know. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I'll send really? it along. Amazing. So, continuing.
2: Sorry, I took us on a tangent. I loved it. I loved it so much. I took right. us on a tangent about the clitoris.
0: I actually did know about all that information, surprisingly, because I was raised by a gynecologist who is yeah. really also, and then I also heard Sherry Winston speak at Mama Gina's School of Womanly Arts.
2: Oh, so, I, I love was- Gina. Yeah, she's amazing.
0: She's amazing. So I, I just was,
2: interviewed her recently. Oh, did you? Yes, yes. She's
0: amazing. She's she, also she also incredible an, woman an and inspiration. Has an inspiration, and you know, and taught me when I was twenty one how to choose pleasure, and I credit that with a lot of the joy in my life. So, oh, it's Christina. So,
2: it's so important. These lessons are so important to understand. Your anatomy and to feel entitled to pleasure, those are sort of the core arguments of my book, Untrue. And, you know, I always say when I give a talk that it could make you angry, but to just moving beyond the anger, to just think about what it means that we, you know, put a man on the moon and sent a rover to Mars and mapped the entire human genome before we put the female erectile network in the internal clitoris into any medical textbooks. And many medical textbooks still don't have it. So it's really important what Gina and Latham are doing.
0: It really is. And I'm so
2: glad that you grew up knowing about it.
0: Well, I didn't. I didn't, I have to just say that I only learned about it because my mom learned about it through Sherry Winston. Okay. My mom never knew because they don't teach it in medical school. So she knew, you know, all the anatomy and of course everything that could go wrong with it, right. but never knew about all the pleasure circuits and right. how it works, how and it works you know, when it goes right.
2: And it's funny because... Helen O'Connell, who, as you probably know, is the Australian urologist who kind of discovered and mapped the internal clitoris for us most recently. I mean, it had been mapped before by anatomists who understood it, and then we sort of lost the knowledge. But she learned about it because she cared about female pleasure. And when she was learning to be a surgeon, as you probably know, she was taught when she was doing urological surgery... It is extremely important to protect the nerve supply to the penis when you're doing urological surgery. Don't snip that the wrong way because you don't want the patient to lose sensation. That would be devastating. And being a female surgeon, she said, my God, that would be devastating. How do I make sure that I don't do this to my female patients? How do I protect the nerve supply to the clitoris? And they said, we don't know. And she said, well, we need to know. And they said, well, why don't you figure it out with zero institutional support and zero funding? And I like to say that, like a woman, she said, you're on. And (laughs) she did it. So thanks to her, you know, we know all this. And thanks to educators like you and Sherry Winston and Latham Thomas and... And uh, Sophia Wallace, who has her clitoracy project. I'm so glad to see that there's a whole new generation of women who not only know the anatomy and physiology, but who feel like pleasure is their right.
0: I'm just taking notes because you're saying things that I want to follow up on in my own research afterwards. I always take notes during our interviews. I'm a a former teacher, so I feel very flattered. I'm such an avid note taker. So I would like to know... As you were studying for your work with untrue and learning about female sexuality and what's oh my gosh I'm totally missing the word on, 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 on not being true infidelity
2: infidelity uh-huh. In non monogamy however yeah, non
0: monogamy uh-huh. I want to know for you how did what you learn shift your life and your relationship with your husband but also just like how you navigate in the world and then also this is a big question so i can remind you of the parts of it yeah and then also like how if at all are you talking to your sons differently than before you wrote this book
2: oh right okay these are really fun questions so i would say that one of the ways writing my book changed me and changed my marriage was that interviewing the women, like some of whom we've already talked about, and a lot of other really interesting women that readers of Untrue will get to meet as well, women who are really changing up our picture of female sexuality, it gave me a much wider lens for understanding my kind of personal conundrums. I learned from Sarah Hurdy, who's a comparativist and a primatologist. She taught me that something really profound. She always views her sexuality through the lens of presumed normalcy, right? So she, being a scientist, has always, and she's written about her own sexuality and female sexuality and she sort of uses herself as a test case and one of the things that she observed that really kind of shook me um, was she said well my menstrual cycles were always pretty much normal and my pregnancies were pretty normal so i presumed that my sexuality was normal i had really never heard a woman presume her sexuality was normal i had been much more accustomed to women presuming that there was something weird or unnatural about their sexuality, particularly if they found sexual exclusivity a struggle. You know, I had thought that that was kind of somehow unfeminine. I had been taught that monogamy is easy for women and difficult for men. And when I started to dive into the data, I first tried to think like Sarah Hurdy and presume that female sexuality in the many forms I would encounter it you know not to start from the presumption that there was something wrong with it or that it was pathological just because women were starting the interview by saying i don't know if you want to talk to me i'm really unusual so that was a great lesson and so it taught me you know this idea of insisting on starting from the presumption that you're healthy and normal if you're lucky enough that other things in your life are pretty healthy and normal um and that was that felt like an act of resistance Mm -hmm. to not start from the presumption of pathology. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I want to punctuate that. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was an interesting thing. Also, this point about sexual entitlement, I often give talks to mixed groups of men and women. And sometimes, like, especially when I start talking about female sexual boredom and the newer data that shows us that women struggle uh, within long-term exclusive pair bonds, actually more than men do. I'm always very careful to say none of this is a referendum on women or their uh, relationships, or if they're heterosexual, it's not a referendum on the men in their lives, the heterosexual men in their lives either. Um, this is just some data about female sexuality. We know that lesbians also you know, report sexual boredom, usually within the first You know, one to three or four years of a relationship. So, you know, that was very interesting to have that data and then to think about when I'm trying to bring men and heterosexual men and women together in a room and not make it feel adversarial. I always say, like, I really want to honor a thing about gay men and straight men alike, which is their straight up entitlement and I mean in a healthy entitlement about sexual pleasure. Men have grown up believing, and this is not their fault, it's neither good nor bad, but they have the advantage that they were raised believing from every movie they watched maybe that had sexual content or maybe even from their sex ed classes, that the sex act began with male arousal and ended with male satisfaction, ejaculation, orgasm, and that Other stuff was kind of called foreplay, that intercourse was the real thing, but the thing that a lot of men have been raised believing is that their sexual pleasure is a right and that the sex act is defined around their pleasure. That's not a bad thing. We just have to add to the picture that women feel... That entitlement and that we raise them with that sense of entitlement too, that their pleasure is really central to a healthy life in general, and that it's not, you know, you're not an outlier if um, you insist on sexual pleasure, and your partner, whether it's a woman or a man or somebody who identifies as neither, is going to get a lot out of you having that sense of entitlement too. I mean, so the idea of getting entitled to pleasure was something new for me and i you know i learned it from these these women and i've also learned it from men so it was a process of seeing how our goals can be really close together so those were very personal lessons for me just amazing yeah to start from the presumption that my sex drive was healthy and normal and to feel entitled To pleasure. I think those were two things the book really did for me. And then, of course, you know, when you spend the better part of three years of your life researching and writing, promoting a book about non-monogamy, for me, you know, my husband and I just started having conversations that we had never had before. So, you know, I hope that my book does that for people. I hope that it makes women feel entitled to pleasure and to presume they're normal and also to feel entitled to have conversations with their partners that they might not have. A lot of people told me that they just got married without having a conversation about monogamy or that they never revisited the presumed monogamy contract after several years of partnership or marriage. So I hope that my book might contribute to men and women alike, you know, feeling like that's a worthy conversation to have and that it's not, you know, going to destroy everything. And it could lead to closeness, whatever they decide to do.
0: I think, you know what, going into marriage without assumptions, period, is just so critical. Mike and I went through, ironically, this book that some Christian guy sent us called Ten Great Dates, before I, I say, you say I do. I do. Yeah. Before I say I do. It's a very ten, Christ- ten Christian da- book.
1: 10 dates. <laughs> T- something like that. Yeah.
0: It didn't have the one about non monogamy. It should have, <laughs> but it wouldn't be very Christian then, at okay, least yeah. the way Christianity is done now. Um, <laughs> But we'll, we'll were, make that the 11th question. We'll make that the 11th one. And maybe you could put this one out like the counter version. But basically, like it, we did go through, there was one about like assumptions about kids. And then there was a whole financial one. And then there was a whole like career one and a whole like, you know, gender mm. roles. And it was so, yeah. we just sort of like ignored the scripture part. And, and it was so great. Remember we went on that yeah. camping trip and we took yeah. this book with us and it had worksheets. I'm such a hyper we nerd. Did, we did all the made Mike do did this. all your and homework. The worksheets, and then we would come back together and discuss. And I'm so glad we did that. And there wasn't one about non-monogamy or monogamy, although you and I had had those we conversations.
1: Did, I would say kind of basic. And then we had kids, and it's like all oh, that. You know, this early like,
0: parenthood thing? Yeah. My goodness.
2: How old are your kids? <laughs> My kids are 11 and 17, and okay. I think there is a developmental piece here. I think at a certain point, you're just slogging through.
1: Yeah.
0: We're slogging.
2: Yeah. That's it's, right. It's,
1: it, yeah. You, you, you. I mean, like in yeah. our, just thinking in our own relationship, it's like yeah. there was dating to some element, right? We are in a car for 34,000 miles for 10 months around the United States. That was our first date.
2: That's and quite then, a first date, Mike.
0: It was yeah. an adventure.
1: So then, but then we moved to Maine and then we like created a life together and then we threw kids into. So it's like we had those conversations before kids came along and then as kids have developed, It's just like, it is the slogging piece. But we did have those conversations previously.
2: Right. And then, yeah. So are you finding that kids are just so, like an anthropologist would just say, they're just so, they require so much energy. I I read somewhere that it is like a million calories that you expend to raise a child (laughs) to age 12 or something. I'm probably getting it wrong. But it is a really draining process, right? How old are they now?
0: Uh, We have a three and a half year old and a 10 month old. Right, I mean. It's just, you know, the three and a half year old is a lot more difficult, I'll say, than the baby. I don't know how it was with your oldest and youngest, but I, but you know, I do feel like we are coming out of a fog a little bit, even more to just revisit like, Oh, hi. Yeah. Even that I even have a husband, let alone like maybe multiple partners, but I even have one. (laughs) Right.
2: Exactly. That you have, like, what a great thing. I I think that one of the things that the experts that I interviewed for untrue, I mean, they were people from all different, Specialties. I'm a comparativist, so I don't just like write a book through the lens of psychology. Or, you know, I I interviewed primatologists and sociologists and medical doctors and biologists. But one of the things that they were all really keen on emphasizing was that sexuality has so much to do with context, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's like the ecology and where you live, like are you living in a place where there are communities of people who are polyamorous and it's not considered unusual? Or another thing that's part of context that matters is the developmental stage of your marriage or your partnership, is it new? Are you still in this like limerence zone where you have sex insanity and everything's new and exciting? Have you been together for one to four years where the female sex drive drops a bit? Do you have little kids? I mean, we haven't really studied enough how human sexuality, let alone female sexuality, alters at all these inflection points. Yeah. yeah. You know, you guys are a living experiment for that, really. You well, should, like, keep a diary.
0: I should, I should be studying <laughs> myself. <laughs> Which, and, <laughs> I I, never, and I do, yeah. to, to some degree. But, like, one thing that I notice with myself is just, and I, you know, I've certainly read about this, too, is that, like, the, the mothering of young children is such a physical experience. Like, mm-hmm. there's so much of the snuggling and with the nursing, like, there's so much yes. physical contact mm-hmm that yeah. I don't really have the yeah. appetite for that much more physical contact because right. I am being touched Yeah, on. exactly.
2: I mean, there are a lot of studies about the sort of what happens with dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin and, Sort of the and oxytocin, and all the which is sort of like a jack of all trades hormone. And, And what happens when we're in contact with our little ones, especially if it's skin to skin, but even just holding and cuddling them. And what I have found really interesting is that, yes, I mean, we do still tend in this country. I can't speak to your arrangement, I usually speak about in the aggregate, right? But in the aggregate, even though we've made great inroads and there's so many great dads, women are still mostly statistically the primary caregivers. And what they describe a lot is that they have, get all their feedback loops get satisfied because they're inundated with cuddles and holding their children
1: and you
0: are i mean mike is like a 50 50 we do yeah. i would say have a
1: i would say 60 <laughs> 40.
0: with our with, our with our older daughter if well, is uh, far yeah. more right. interested
1: no 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 with yeah i In would mike. say oh, would
0: you say you 60 40 or no, no, me 60 no, yeah. 40. oh i with was ru- like i was ru- like ru- really we should maybe have a conversation <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: with penelope i'm like I you
0: sure. of anybody i know yeah. like and and so i'm curious for you hun Do you find that with that physical connection feedback loop, like are you experiencing something similar to what I'm experiencing?
1: Well, I'm not breastfeeding. So I know that's like... (laughs) There's that.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I've never thought about it. So it's not something... There's an element to coming from a guy, right? There's an element of taking care of a kid is like a task. It's just checking off the feed them, check. You know, it's like reading book, check. Going to bed, check.
2: No, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, so
1: with i would say in the last so i got i got sick in october and i had this full-blown skin rash and it's been a whole growth experience for me and i would say since i have been healing from that my relationship with my kids has changed and relationship with kind of life the whole shebang i see and so it's actually cracked me open a little bit more than what i was before where it's allowing me to kind of feel this time together with them is more meaningful than what was before this period. Because I don't think, you know, based off what you just said, as the woman being the primary caregiver, there definitely can be more of an even balance, which I want, but I don't think men will ever, I think if men are always become the primary caregiver, I think things are, I don't, I don't, It's just like, because you're, you're growing these human beings. Like there's an element that the kids with that the connection there—that's what I'm trying—is yeah. the connection uh-huh. to something I will never experience.
0: But what about for adoptive parents?
1: That's true, right? Well, right. About, that's
0: what's interesting? Couple, yeah, two right. men who have kids. I mean, that's yeah. a whole different. Scenario. Yeah, we actually. What's
2: great is that we actually have science about this, about attachment. I'm so interested to hear Mike talk about how, when he sort of had more time and slowed down, how his relationship to your kids changed. And I also want to say I don't know if you're. Is it this an if it's an autoimmune condition? But rashes are an autoimmune response, and we know that kids in the industrialized West, the way we raise them, it's just it's a huge stressor. So it's not unusual to find in our culture that when people have kids, especially when they're putting in the really really hard work, the stress really starts to show. Often, Um, we do here's some interesting study, at least a finding, which was that men who merely changed a baby's diaper a certain number of times a day, it affected their hormonal profile. And it showed that men, like women, are primed for caregiving.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, for sure.
2: Isn't that amazing? Well, it's
1: confidence.
2: It's confidence. And it's, Yeah. uh, yeah. And you know what tends to happen, and you guys are a living example of how you can change this up and how sort of flexible gender roles are, but also like how humans are really ingeniously adaptive to many uh, social situations and can be really creative. So a fascinating thing is this study that men, you know, taking care of a baby, it changes their hormone profile. Um, So that's really wonderful and telling. But we have examples from all over the world. There is a group of people called the Aka people, and the men are called the most involved dads anywhere in the world. And they spend a huge percentage of their waking hours in skin-to-skin contact with their babies. And they nurse their babies. Babies, you know, use their dad's nipples as a pacifier, and there are incredibly high, you know, number of minutes per day that dads log with their babies. So, I think it's great to see just all the marvelous flexibility that can happen there. And we do know that just simply more time spent with the baby means greater bondedness. And you know attachment is like this suite of behaviors that unfolds over time between a caregiver and a baby. The baby doesn't care what gender you are. It just responds to the caregiving and the light in your eye telling the baby you're everything. So um, I love those examples. My husband is a lot like Mike. My husband has four kids. He and I have two kids together. Um, my husband's youngest child is our 11-year-old son. And my husband's oldest child is his 34-year-old daughter from his previous marriage. And with my youngest, my husband had a real sense that this was his last child that he was going to have. Well, you know, there could be a surprise around the corner, but not not from me. Let's put it that way. But so he, I saw him really cotton to caregiving in a way that he hadn't with our previous child although he was always a really involved daddy but i often say to my husband that i really admire that he became the primary caregiver for our youngest and it changed up a lot of dynamics in our marriage for example when your husband is really putting in the time as the even Steven caregiver, there's so much more that you can think about. You can think more about sex. You can think, you can feel more because you're not the one with the baby all the time, right? Now you're freed up and you like, might be more open to cuddles and lustful glances and things that were otherwise getting fed by the baby. You can work on your career. And we know that when women feel good about themselves professionally or outside of motherhood, it has a positive impact. So I just think that this kind of even Stephen parenting, whatever the gender of the parents is the way of the future. And I'm all for it. And I'm so glad you guys are living the example.
1: Thank you. So, thank you. I, so based off of that, I watched, you know, I was doing for research of this, I watched quite a few interviews you were a part of and you were in the UK, I believe, with Mm -hmm. the woman that like really was in kind of in your face where you're talking about non non-monog- non monogamous relationships and yeah. she's like, No, this is not no, we have to this is the only right? And I right.
2: know I I think what I said about her is that she's passionate about monogamy.
1: Yes. Like a right? lot of people and so, are, yeah. And there's a lot of people because I, I feel like I mean, coming into a relationship, there's Kate and myself, and then even taking that into parenting, it's just built up stories that have been created from my parents and like, I grew up, I'm a recovering Catholic. So it's like coming from that. And it's just like, and, and also Kate's family and that came from a divorce. My parents are still married. So you have all of these okay. stories that have been created that come into yeah. one dynamic, right?
2: Yeah. So do
1: you think this place of dad stepping in more to have more of an equal partnership is
2: mm.
1: creating the space for, it's like, what is, happening with the science of women having more relation like wanting to go outside of what their current monogamous relationship is Uh part b of that question is do you feel in your research and the data and the trends is do you think marriage as we know it is going to change in 20 or 30 years like there just won't be the structure of government marriage really that's yeah
2: Oh, oh yeah that really interesting questions okay the second part of your question is marriage going to change? I think it already has. Yeah. I think it's changing. The ground is changing underneath our feet, even as we're speaking. We know that 95% of Americans or more think that monogamous marriage is the best arrangement, right? At the same time, the sex researcher Amy Moore found that in a 10 year period, Our Google searches and Internet searches for terms like consensual non-monogamy, polyamory, open relationship increased exponentially all across the country. So what I like to say is that Americans are married to monogamous marriage, but we're curious about our options. And so I think that we're seeing that. We're seeing that reflected in... TV programming, right? Like there were shows like Big Love, but there were also shows like, and that was like about a a Mormon man with several wives and we were fascinated by that. But we have also been fascinated by shows like I Love Dick, which is about a couple trying to figure out their feelings about this cool artist who comes into their lives. His name is Dick. Um, It's based on a novel of the same title. There is a show, Unicorn Land, Um, about a woman who's single and dating couples in New York City. She decides that she wants to date couples. Um, There's another show called You're the Worst, and one of the subplots of You're the Worst is that a female character named Lindsay wants to have a swinger, kind of be in a swinger relationship with her really straight-laced husband. So I think from our Google searches to the entertainment that's engaging us um, to conversations people are having, I mean, I remember a friend of mine going on the Today Show to talk about whether monogamy was, you know, what are the different options. We're kind of mainstreaming the idea now that while we are really attached to monogamy, it doesn't work for everyone. Now, Mike, you asked about the role women are playing in this shift. And you know, before I wrote untrue, I had an intuitive sense that we were misrepresenting women's relationship to monogamy. We usually sort of portray women as the anxious guardians of monogamy. They just naturally want it and that men naturally want to stray. Um, as it turns out, all that science has been revisited It's much more complicated. And it turns out that it's women who really are experiencing low desire in long-term monogamous partnerships where their desire just goes and drops off, whereas men's desire is going like this, right, more slowly ebbing. And the way that some experts I interviewed put it was the following. Well, when it comes to long-term monogamous partnerships, Men are better at wanting the sex they already have than women are. Now, does this mean the solution is to step out? Of course not. There are other solutions. But I do think that women, to an extent that we haven't considered, are driving our culture's interest in alternatives to lifelong monogamy. Um, And a lot of experts that I interviewed told me, a lot of couples, therapists that I interviewed said, they said, no, it's it's mostly women who come into my practice and say, I want to open up this relationship or I want to change things. Or here's the thing that people who work with swingers say a lot of times that the issue that swingers bring into therapy is that the, it was the man's idea and that he initiated it. And the woman went along reluctantly and then she gets very, very into it. Now, we also know from data from the general social survey, we've had data since the mid 90s showing men and women, quote, cheating, unquote, a term I don't really like, but at equal rates. So we really have to rethink our assumptions that, you know, men are you know, I'm going to speak in cliches now. Oh, you know that men are dogs and they need to spread their seed and this is just how men are. And whereas women are, you know, these kind of goody two-shoes who are wired for monogamy. We know from the data on the ground and newer science that the picture is much more complex and that actually women are really struggling with monogamy. So I think that as freakish as women may feel when they say, what is going on with me? Like I've got a four year old and yet I'm just so interested when like a stranger gives me a lustful glance. I just wanna really like do something about that. Or you know, they'll say, what is wrong with me that I've been married for 10 years and I'm attracted to, uh, to a man and now I'm attracted to a woman. We haven't really plumbed the depths of female sexuality enough. And when we do, we're going to be really surprised. And I think when men and women alike read my book, they'll get a sense of how surprising it is. And I hope it'll make men and women alike and people who identify as neither just feel more normal in their skin about
0: their sexuality. That's the hope. And to open up those conversations, Mm -hmm. right? Because you can't have solutions for the conversations you're not having. And so I just want to put Thank you for writing this book, Untrue, and for everyone listening, go get your copy of Untrue <laughs> because, the first of all, I love that it's evidence-based. Your way of weaving your own story throughout and the tidbits and the vignettes about the research you did is just really fun, and then it will open up these incredible conversations that you can then have more fulfillment in whatever way that's going to look like for you and your partner yeah. or you and your multiple partners or whatever it is that you decide.
2: Thank so, you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you for the work. Thank you. Yeah. I
2: think for some people, monogamy is a great answer. They just need to understand that for most people, it's not an easy answer forever. And once they know that, I think you're right. And I just want women and men alike to feel entitled to have the conversation. Maybe the conversation is that you feel entitled to monogamy. That's a good solution for some people. But to have the conversation is revolutionary in this country. And I'm really hoping that uh, men and women alike will feel okay about having it. Absolutely. I think we
1: should. I mean, it's it's super stressful to be like, you're going to take care of all of my needs for the rest of my life. Oh, it's like, too much pressure. What, how much pressure? <laughs> and maybe yeah. that is a reality, right? Maybe that is the right. reality of what, and that's okay. But I think as long as the the conversation is had to be like that everybody's on the same page.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, Esther Perel has written about this and she's yeah. sort of work, building on the work of a psychoanalyst who uh, named Michelle Schenkman, and also another, an analyst named Stephen Mitchell, this idea of kind of needing to be one, expecting one person to do everything for you. And Michelle Schenkman has talked about this thing she calls the segmented model of marriage, which, you know, Michelle Schenkman is from South America, and she talks about how in South America and Europe, there's a a model of marriage that Americans um, don't, really know about, which is that you expect that your marriage is great for certain things, for raising your children, for having a fun person to go to a concert with, for lifelong connection that's so beautiful, for inside jokes, for companionship. But you don't expect that that person can also provide you with sexual thrill and um she says how could how could marriages improve if people acknowledged this and then made a plan accordingly so i think you're right that that concept mike is getting into the mainstream a little bit more and i liked the way you said it that you said like what a big stress to need to be everything for your person right it's yeah. a lot it's a lot
1: it is a lot i just uh did have you seen the so I read Esther Perel's latest book mm-hmm. and I was, I was like, wow, we got a good thing going here because the stories in that thing are, I, I was like, wow. You know, it's just like, we, our, our relationship, it was needed a little, like it was, it gave it a little boost. It was just like, "Yeah, yeah we're, we're good. Yeah. But Will Smith and Jada on the red table just yeah. did part one, part two recently about their yeah. discussions and how their dynamics have changed. I I've watched it. Kate hasn't watched it. Yet. We're going to watch it together, but just how, they have gone through their stuff together and kind of how they've made the commitment where they're not saying they're married anymore. They're just life partners. for the life
2: the partners. Year, you know? Yeah. Fascinating.
1: Yeah. And so it's just an interesting take because it is the, it's like we're in this together to work on our stuff. Like, like we've been working on our stuff since we've had kids since we've been together and I mean, you challenged me to be a better person. I think I challenge you to be a better person. You know, it's so- <laughs> me I too. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> and- and so, Confirmed, Mike. All right, great. So, and not like, it's not on purpose. It's just part of where you're just like, I'm not gonna put up with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Stuff I used to be able to get away with or things like that and just- sure. How that dynamic, it helps us improve each other. Yeah. And it's a much different way as like navigating life together. To help each other survive life, right? Instead of saying, like, you are here to take care of all of my needs. And I can see why, I mean, growing up in the patriarchy, right, as having men be the dominant factor, where especially not caretaking all the time, and how women could just be like, well, screw this dude, I'm out. You know, like, (laughs) if he's not gonna show up, like, I'm out of here.
0: That also must be a factor in the data. Well, I was just
2: thinking to go back to your point about Will and Jada. I was just thinking about how there's so much information about how couples who decide to not be monogamous, but to go the distance and to stay together. So they say, we're going to be, we're life partners, but we're changing up our agreement now. We were monogamous now. We're going to adventure and then we're going to revisit this and see how it goes. Or they're just consensually non-monogamous. Maybe they're polyamorous, swingers and an open marriage, whatever it is the findings about them are consistently that they're excellent communicators. Mm. And you can see how it happens from two directions, right? Anybody who's interested in talking through these issues, anybody who's, it's going to be a person who's interested in process and conversations. And also anybody who finds themselves in a partnership where they're talking about should we be monogamous or not, that's going to require even improving further your communication skills. So every expert I talked to said the thing about consensual non-monogamy is that the people doing it process the crap out of everything.
0: I thought that was so funny. Because the polyamorous people I know are extensive processors. They're
2: processors. Okay. And they also said like, so many experts said to me, my patients who are swingers have important lessons to teach monogamous people. And one of them is ask, communicate, Mm talk don't shut down so i think that's really interesting about will and jada and the other thing that you reminded me of mike is the way like not only is there not like a one size fits all prescription but like within a couple itself you guys have little kids now Mm -hmm. you'll be in a different place in five years and maybe people who are in a different place in five years want to have another conversation reset their agreement sometimes i've interviewed people who tell me that they talk to their partners and they say, okay, you know what? We're each going to adventure for one night and come back and talk about whether we want to continue this. So whenever I've interviewed people who are successfully consensually non-monogamous or even monogamous people who are happily in it for the long term, it has always been revisiting their contract and their agreement and refining it, which was such a foreign concept to me. I thought you just put a ring on it and there you go,
0: Right. that is just the perfect, you know, whether it's a business relationship, whether it's a friendship, but it's particularly in marriage. I think that that is just the perfect reminder that there are seasons and all seasons are going to require a different conversation and a different agreement. So I just want to thank you for your time. This was so interesting. It was fun talking to you guys. We're going to have so many more conversations, Mike and I, as a result of your work. I'm so glad.
2: And I'll be um, following you. And I just think you're a great living experiment about humans being, you know, remarkably flexible, sexual, social strategists. I'm just going to watch and
0: see what you guys do. We'll keep you posted. We'll keep you posted. And where should people find you to follow your work?
2: They can follow me on Instagram at WednesdayMartinPhD. I'm on Twitter, not as often. Um, And they can buy my book, Untrue, at an independent bookstore that they love, or they can buy it from Amazon. And authors love Amazon reviews. So thanks in advance to anybody who feels inspired to do that.
0: Amazing. Thank you, Wednesday. This was a pleasure. Thank Thank you
2: you guys for having me on. Talk soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.
0: What if you had enough time and energy for the things that matter most? Are you a busy mom who is trying to do it all without doing herself in? My brand new book, Do Less, A Revolutionary Approach to Time and Energy Management for Busy Moms is available for pre-order now. When you go to katenorthup.com forward slash pre-order, you can pre-order your book and qualify for $649 worth of amazing bonuses, including workshops, interviews, masterclasses, and a guided course worth $297. So head over to katenorthup.com forward slash pre-order.